1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25 really is our next section. Probably just get through verses 17 through 20 today. Uh, last week, if you were here, we looked at verses 1 through 16, and Paul kind of put our focus on some relationships within the church. Uh, we looked at the fact that churches are going to be multi-generational. There's going to be people of all different ages uh, in, in a church, and it should be that way. It, a church shouldn't spend its time focusing on just one generation or a couple generations. It needs to be all generations. And so Paul tells Timothy how to handle all of them, different generations, as fathers, as mothers, as sisters, and as brothers. And then we took our time going through verse 3 through 16, and Paul shared with Timothy, and then thus us, of how as a church you are to uh, minister to the widows within the congregation. And so we saw that there was a lot to that, making sure that they are widows, um, making sure that they are in need, uh, and then loving them and encouraging families to take care of those and their family who are widows. Uh, but we see that uh, Paul knows it's important uh, accordingly of how we deal with relationships. Paul wanted to uh, give us instruction on how we handle these different relationships. And today, uh, Paul transitions some, but he, he keys off of the widows when it, when it comes to the respect and the honor that the widows deserve. He transitions to another relationship, and that is the relationship, relationship that we have in a church between the pastors and those in the congregation. And so I want to say this, uh, if, there, if you're a guest this morning, if you do not regularly attend MMBC, I want to share with you how we do our preaching, because that is important to know why we are where we are. We believe that you should preach expositionally, and we take that as meaning you take a book of the Bible, and then you take your time going through that book of the Bible, and you go verse by verse, section by section, without skipping any of the sections. You say, well, why are you telling us this? Because this morning I'd skip this section, no doubt. Uh, it would be very easy to do that, because this isn't the most comfortable passage for a pastor uh, to preach. And so I am making my way through this book, and this just happens to be where we find ourselves this morning in this section. Now in saying that, I also want to share this, and this might seem uh, conceited or pompous. I don't mean it in that way. I hope that you'll be glad that I'm saying this. I believe that as a pastor, I have the most important job in the world. I really believe that. I don't think there's another job out there that is more important than this task. I'm glad that God has called me to this. There's times I would pray, take me out of this, definitely. But I'm glad that I've been called to this, and I'm thankful for it. And so I want you to, to know that as we continue in this section. I'm not trying to puff myself up in saying that or any other pastor. But I want you to know how serious I attempt to take this. And I believe our other pastors do that as well here in this church. And I say that also wanting and hoping that you find your job to be important. Uh, we know that God gives us all different vocations and tasks that we are to do, and none are bigger or smaller than the other. It's a good task that you've been given, uh, whatever your job is, and I hope that you find it to be important. Uh, I also want to state, I know that I'm not perfect in this job or in any aspect of being a pastor, but either is any pastor. I've met a lot of them, and I haven't found a a good one yet, honestly. No, a perfect one. I haven't found a perfect one yet at all. Uh, but the hope is, and I think what Paul's getting at here in this section, is that a church family will grow together. 
that the pastor will grow, but also the congregation will grow at the same time. And they'll, they'll grow together in a loving way, just like family does. And the church is a family. Pastor Spencer says this a lot on our podcast. The, the family analogy in Scripture isn't an analogy. We are a family. As a church, that is what we are. You can't say we're like a family or we function kind of similar to a family. No, the Bible says very clearly, we are a family. With God our Father, right, with Jesus our Savior, and we function as a family through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we are a family. And so we want to grow together just like a family grows together. And we know how that is, don't we? If you have a family that is bigger than you by yourself, you know that the other person in your family gets on your nerves. That happens, doesn't it? But you also know that when you look at that other person in your family, you think, but at the same time, I just love you to death. You drive me crazy, but I love you to death. If you're a parent, you know that you just dream of the time that you can get away from your kids for a little bit. But then what happens when you and your wife get away from your kids for a little bit? You talk about those little things the whole time you're away. You talk about your kids the whole time. And you think, oh man, so-and-so would really have enjoyed this. Oh, our daughter would really have loved this meal. And you talk about that. Why? It's because you love them. They're your family. God has given them to you. And so as a family, you grow together. And you, you grow in a way that you hope honors the Lord and glorifies God. And the church is the same way. I want us to remember that. I want that to sink in into you as much as it can, okay? I'm not perfect, you're not perfect, and as you sit by the people you sit by, they're not perfect either. But God has called and brought us together to be a family that loves him, that honors him, that serves him, and most of all, puts our hope and our faith solely in him and what he has done. And so as we read, and we're going to here in a second, chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, I want us to keep that in mind. Because again, he's going off the widows, and now he changes to our relationship between pastor, elder, and congregation. So look at verse 17. I'll read all the way to 25, even though we're not going to do all those verses today. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden." I got this broke up in some different words as we go through the verses. And like I said, we're not going to cover them all today. Uh, but the words are compensation, protection, correction, inclusion, temperance, and perception. We'll get to the last three next week. But this week, we're going to focus on compensation, protection, and correction and try to learn what Paul is getting at here in this passage and in this section. 
In verse 17 uh, through 18, there's no doubt that Paul is talking about compensation for pastors here. And as I mentioned, he just talked about honoring widows, and now he changes to honoring pastors. The word elders is used in the ESV. Uh, please know this. Elders, pastors, bishops is used interchangeably. Okay, so when you see that word elder, you can think in your head, pastor. So it's, it's the same thing. So hopefully you'll understand that, because at times I'll probably say elder, because that's what the passage says, but it, it's, it's pastor. Okay, uh, it might seem like a questionable jump by Paul to go from widows to elders, but I do think it's a, a needed one, as we're going to see in this passage. Satan would love nothing more, and I want you to hear this, than for the leadership in the church to fail. And that's in any way possible. In any way possible, he would want the leadership of the church to fail. That could mean morally, that could mean theologically, that could mean in any way. Because if the leadership starts to fail, then the church will start to fail. That's what's inevitably going to happen. And so Satan loves to attack the leadership. One of the ways that we see that happen within the church is what Paul addresses here, and that is the struggle of compensation in the church. Satan loves to see churches argue about this. Sadly, there are some pastors within church life and within church families who take great advantage of this passage. And so what they do is they rob the church of its money. Maybe not in like a criminal way of cooking the books or whatever it might be, but what I see most common today is pastors using very poor theology to teach and to sway people that in order to show your faith, you must give more to your pastor. You say, well, I don't think that happens a lot. It happens a lot. It's all over the place. Pastors using this bad theology, uh, saying you need to plant seeds, and that seed is your money. And when you plant that, God will use that in your faith to then grow you exponentially. Then you will be given what you need by God. But you have to go out there first and plant that seed, and always it's money. Always it's financial, and always it lines the pockets of those pastors. That's what it's for. And so you see pastors taking this passage and abusing it, and they, and they definitely do that. Well, other pastors, I think, take advantage of this and the compensation of their church, and this is sad to see, in that what the church pays, they don't actually work hard enough for it. They do only work one day a week, even though the church pays them for a full week's worth of work. They don't take the time to study passages and develop good sermons and really know what the Word of God says. They don't care for the flock like they should. They take their paycheck and do as little as possible so that they can get by with maybe nobody noticing. And so the same thing that happens out in regular jobs happens in the church as well. And so we see the church robbed by bad theology, but also by a bad work ethic. But amongst pastors, many of them if you get to know a lot of pastors, and you, know, you need to know, most congregations are small. Most congregations in our country run about 50 people. And what you run into with many pastors is you run into pastors who are working hard. They're doing their best to know the word of God, to preach well, but yet they receive very little for the very heavy task that has been laid upon them of being a pastor. In Hebrews chapter 13 Verse 17, the writer of Hebrews would say, and I want you to catch this, 
Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. A pastor that's worth his salt will take Hebrews 13, 17 very seriously, and not just the part of forcing their congregation to submit to them. The part that I'm saying they take seriously is, for they are keeping watch over your souls. That's the task that's on me. It's not on you. It's on me. And what is that talking about? It is on me to make sure that what I am teaching and preaching to you is nourishing and good for your soul. That's the task that I have to do every Sunday. That's the task that our pastors here have to do when they stand before you and preach or teach or make decisions on what will be taught within the church. And those decisions have your soul there in mind. And that's a heavy burden. That is a heavy task. And you might say, and this is the pushback that happens a lot, very sadly, is you might be sitting there and say, Pastor, I don't need you to do that. I can care for my own soul. I got to tell you, if you're thinking about that this morning, if that's your thought this morning, I got to tell you, you are completely going against Scripture. So you're already doing a bad job of looking over your soul because that's not right. That is wrong. You can't do it. God has determined that we will be a family together and that family will have pastors in it who will care for your soul. And so if a pastor takes this seriously, it is a very heavy weight. And so sadly, what you have in a lot of churches is you have good men caring for souls well, yet the church doesn't want to compensate them for it. And that happens all the time. I've been in those conversations before talking about somebody's salary and it's, it's sad to hear how church folk will talk about that with their pastor. They want to give him the minimum possible. They'll, I've heard of churches, they'll, they'll look at, okay, what do people make in our, in our county? And they'll take the median, but then they also have other numbers of like a higher number and a lower number. And almost always, in all those conversations I've been in, they don't look at the median. They want to look at the lower. And then the, and then the conversation goes like this. Well, if they're really serving for the right reason, they won't serve for money. And it's like, that don't make any sense. They have to eat. Right? They, they have to. Have, they have a family. Most of the time when people look for pastors, they want them to be married. They want them to have kids. It's like, and you want them to live off the bare minimum of what people in the county. Now think about the tasks that they're doing. You're calling them to care for your soul. And that's what you're going to do for them? That's the love and the respect and the honor that you are going to do for them. Remember, it can flip back to widows. As we care for those widows, here, here, just have this one piece of white bread. Is that what we're going to do for our widows? No. We want to give them good food. We want to care for them. Why would we do that for the widow? Because we love them and we want them to see that we love them. That's why Paul is balancing the honoring widows now with honoring the pastors. To care for them. To love for them. And if I'm being quite honest, I can't think of a better way to use my money than to give my money to a place that's going to care and watch over my soul. Tell me what I need to hear. Right? I know, I know what I'm thinking, but tell me what I need to be thinking. Help me out here. What is the word of God telling me that I can put my hope in? I can't think of a better place to give to. Now, you might be thinking this because this is exactly what I thought as I read this passage. Paul, you're writing this and this is good. But don't you say yourself that you preach without pay. 
Because Paul says that in other places. Uh, go ahead in your Bibles if you want to turn there because it's a little longer section. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8 to 18. This is where we find this with Paul because Paul would say he would do this without pay. And so I want to look at that passage because it balances with this one because we need to be fair here. This passage is a parallel with the one we have here in Timothy. But 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 to 18. Paul says, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And then this is where Paul talks about himself. He says, But I have made no use of any of these rights, for I am writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach... The gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. I want you to notice what Paul stresses here. As he stresses he did not make money in verse 15. But we also have to know that Paul had a very special calling in his life as an apostle, of which you are not and I am not. Uh, we are not an apostle. There are some today who call themselves apostles, and you need to be very weary of them people. They're not apostles. You shouldn't listen to them. But Paul had this calling in his life. He was an apostle, and so his calling is very different and drastically different than the calling of a pastor today. But even as an apostle, Paul says here in this passage, he had the right to ask for money, but he didn't do that. He didn't ask for material things. He did these things on his own. And Paul uses two analogies for compensation of pastors. He uses it here, but also in 1 Timothy of what we read. The first one is how we treat our animals. This goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. It says it very clearly. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. What does this mean? Why would we have that law? What does this law show us about God? As that oxen is treading out the grain, what is he saying to do? Don't muzzle it. Why? What would a muzzle do? A muzzle would say that that animal can't bed down and get some of the food that it's working on. It wouldn't allow it to do that. So what it would do is it would keep all the money, all the, all the food for the farmer. But God says don't do that. Now you animal lovers will really like this because God is showing a care for the animal here. Let them eat. Don't muzzle them. Let them eat. Treat them well. And treat them correctly. And Paul says here in, in Corinthians, this was written for us. He says this was written for pastors, for the leaders of the church. And he uses that analogy. As they work, let them eat. 
right? Give them compensation. But then he also uses a passage of Scripture found in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. And we could talk a lot about this because there's some interesting things here. Luke probably wasn't written when Paul had wrote this, but here we have Paul quoting Jesus here. And so maybe some of the things that Jesus had said had been written at this point was being passed around as Scripture. But in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, it says, And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. And this is what Paul quotes. He quotes Jesus saying, the laborer deserves his wages. The work that he does deserves wages. Paul's point here is that God cares for how we treat animals. God cares about the laborers. Do we not think that God cares about those he calls to be ministers in the church? If they work hard, if they love you well by bringing the word of God to you, if they're watching over your soul well, then pay them a worthy wage. Now I must say, that my time at Monroe Missionary Baptist Church, which is almost up to 10 years now, you've done this fantastically. You've been very kind to my family. And so I couldn't, I couldn't pour this passage out to you without saying that. I don't want you to feel burdened by that this morning because I believe our church does that very well. You guys are very kind to us as pastors. Well, let's move on then to verse 19. In verse 19... Paul moves on to protection. He says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Notice what Paul tells Timothy here. He says, do not even listen to a charge against the pastor unless there's two or three witnesses. So, so one voice. This is, this is pretty common. I'll hear this a lot. Hey, Pastor Tim, a lot of people are saying, what? A lot of people are saying, who? A lot. You know what that means? One. You, as you are saying that, that's what somebody is saying, good job, right? That's not two or three witnesses just because you say a lot. We need more, right? But, but that is often said, but he says you need two or three witnesses. Now remember what I said earlier, Satan will do anything to bring down godly leadership. And this is another way. False accusations, whatever it might be. Now don't get me wrong, and we see this in this passage, pastors who need to be rebuked need to be rebuked. They need to be dealt with, and we'll see this in our next verse that we look at. But oftentimes, I see pastors who are vilified wrongfully, and simply because of the gravity to which they often work in. Again, I told you, I think, I, I think being a pastor is a very important job, because we're watching over souls. So there's a lot of times conversations that can be very uncomfortable, put into, put into situations when people are at the lowest of low in their life sometimes at the highest of highs of their life. And you have to enter into that with them. And then you want to teach them the word of God and you want them to go according to the word of God. And a lot of times there's conflict as a result of this. And so it can often be very difficult just simply because of the gravity in which a pastor also often finds themselves working in. Tensions are high during difficult times. Some of you know this because you've experienced that in your family recently. A death of a loved one should be a time when families come together. You know what often happens in the death of a loved one? Fighting. Why? There's money on the line a lot of times. And money brings out fighting. You have siblings who are raised in the same home by loving parents. And their loving parents pass away. And what do the siblings do? They fight. Over money. Over things. Over stuff. Why does that happen? Because tensions are high 
when we face difficulty. And so there are times when our siblings or our loved ones make mistakes, and these mistakes can often then turn into a huge blow-up in unfair ways just because tensions are high. Well, the same thing happens for pastors. It can lead to charges against them that just simply are unfair. Uh, Maybe the pastor didn't show up to something you felt that he needed to show up to because in your family it was a big deal. And for whatever reason, maybe good reasons or maybe bad reasons, the pastor didn't have the opportunity to show up or didn't show up, and now what happens? You are ticked at him. He served you for 20 years, 30 years, you and your family, but now because of one incident, what happens? It's all gone. Tensions are high, and I don't like this guy anymore. And that can really eat away at a church, and simply, it oftentimes can be unfair. I've experienced this some myself in the ministry. I I know how hard it can be to love a family, to love them for a long time, to be there with them through highs and lows, but then all of a sudden, one mess up on my part or, or one misunderstanding on my part, which is on me, I would say that for sure, leads to a fight, it leads to accusations, and sadly, it leads to divorce. And you say, well, why would you use the word divorce? Because to me, that's what happens when church members leave the church. It's a divorce. You might not take it that seriously, but as a pastor who takes his job seriously and one who watches over your soul, and we are a family who loves each other, leaving the family is not a small ordeal. It would absolutely crush me, and I'm guessing it would absolutely crush you If your firstborn came to you and said, I don't want to be a part of this family anymore. I'm going to go join them. I mean, it kind of hurts. It kind of hurts when your kids come home from somebody else's house. Maybe you've experienced this before. And they say, Dad, their house is awesome. Well, what about our house? No, their house is awesome. Well, what do you mean? They took me to Buffalo Wild Wings. You don't ever do that. Their basement they got everything in their basement. Their parents didn't care what we did. We stayed up till three in the morning. We drank Mountain Dew all night long. Can't do that here. That kind of hurts, doesn't it? Because you're like, yeah, but I care for you. They obviously don't. I, I try to care for you and help you. I, I give you money all the time. I, I feed you every day. We take you on vacations the best we can. You have a vehicle or whatever it might be, right? We can go down the list of all the things that parents do and When we hear them say that, it's crushing, isn't it? I'm just here to tell you and to speak for all pastors. It's the exact same way when somebody leaves their church. And it's not just about us, but it's about all of us. Because very rarely do I hear a very good reason for that to happen. It often is because of some accusation, some thing that was thought up, And during when tensions were high, and as a result, all of that other stuff fades away, and one rash decision is made, and now the family gets separated. Now, sometimes pastors are falsely accused of things just because someone doesn't like them. That definitely happens, no doubt. Sadly, churches have people in them who view the church as their possession, as their entity to protect And so when a pastor comes in who they don't really like or who maybe they don't see perfectly eye to eye with or don't do what they deem to be necessary for the sake of the church, what do they do? They say, well, I've got to go. And it assumes the whole order of God's church. It kind of 
breaks up really how it is supposed to function and be played out. Sometimes, though, pastors are accused of things just because of ignorance. I'm not saying because members are dumb. I'm just saying because of ignorance. There's miscommunication. There's lack of biblical understanding. Sometimes there's lack of a knowledge of the church's history. Lack of social cues sometimes can all lead to wrongful accusations. That when you get and actually have a conversation, it usually gets solved and fixed, and you understand that that anger that I've held for the last two years was just a lack of communication. Paul says this to Timothy so that these situations will be taken seriously, but also that they'll be taken thoughtfully. Again, we're not dealing with some family-run business here. That's not what the church is. What we're dealing with is we're dealing with the church of the living God that he allows us to be a part of and serve in together. And so we must take it seriously. I want to remind you, church family, that as we work together, we are called to be a light on a hill in a dark world. We are to be the hope that people have in salvation as we point them to Christ. That is our job. Some of you might run a family-owned business, right? And you hope that your kids will take it over. I don't know what your family-run business is. Let's say it's making pizzas. I don't know. I love pizza. That would be a great job for you to do. But that's not like being a light on a dark, in a dark city. It's very different. It's not just some business. We have the kingdom of God that we get to be a part of. And how we treat each other and how we act with each other matters. And so we want people to know that Monroe Missionary Baptist Church is a place where people can find hope, where they can find peace, where they can find joy, where they can find forgiveness. And that's not because you and I are so good at those things. That's because we serve a God who's given us all those things. And we know that together. And we let them know that together. And you can even preface it with this. Hey, I'd like to invite you to my church. There's a lot of weird people there. But they love the Lord. But God has saved them. That would be 100% true. You could say there's people there who drive me crazy. That's fine. That's true. It's not a lie. But they love the Lord and God has saved them. And he's poured out his grace on them. And it's my job to give them grace also. I want to love them well also. These are the conversations we should be having with our friends and with our family members. But if they look into the church and they see that we cannot love each other and that we're not able to give grace to each other, how in the world can we then offer them grace that Christ gives? We can't. They're going to be like, I don't see it. It doesn't happen. And again, I I could stick on this for a long time because this is something that drives me crazy. But I've been trying to talk a lot about church unity and church love. And the reason for that is the scripture is very clear where it says, and you need to hear this, how will they know that you are mine? So hear this. How will a lost and dying world know beyond a shadow of doubt that you are God's, that he has saved you, and the message that you have from his word is the truth? How are they going to know? The Bible gives us the answer. And it's not necessarily your hermeneutic or all these different things that you could throw at it. How are they going to know? By the love that you have for each other. That's what it says. It's pretty cut and dry. It's how much you love each other. And it's talking about us within this 
church family. And so it's no doubt if you talk to your neighbor and you wish that God would save them, and maybe you've invited them to church, and you wonder, why don't they come to church? Because you always tell them how horrible your pastor is. Why would they? You always tell them that the music is so bad. You always tell them that it was freezing cold in church again. Or whatever else, whatever else you want to lay out. And then you think, why wouldn't you go there? Again, let's go back to the pizza restaurant thing, because I'm kind of intrigued by that as I think about it. If you ran your pizza business and you told your neighbors, hey, you should come have our pizza, it's not that good. Actually, I've had four cooks. They keep finding Band-Aids and everything. You should come to our restaurant, but just if you come, man, wear a jacket. Our heat doesn't work. Would you go to that restaurant? No. No. And then you'd be sitting there wondering, why doesn't anybody come to our restaurant? Why does, why does my business never succeed? It's because you don't actually love your business. You, you don't love it. You only talk bad about it. Sadly, us as church people, we do the same thing. We focus on the one little thing that goes wrong with the pastor or with the fellow person in the congregation. And what we do is we wipe away, some of you, this is, this, some of you, this is actually real numbers for you. You wipe away 60 years of the love that God has shown you through Monroe Missionary Baptist Church and you would kick that all aside because of one little thing. Now you tell me how that makes sense. It doesn't, does it? And so thankfully, Paul here gives Timothy a word for protection for pastors. Make sure that there's two or three witnesses before you do anything in rebuking a pastor, which gets to verse 20 of where we'll end this morning. He says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Here we see very clearly that sin amongst pastors does need to be dealt with. Like I said before, if they need to be rebuked, by all means, let's go through the right avenues and have them rebuked. And I would say this needs to be done correctly, but also it needs to be done urgently. It seems kind of harsh how Paul tells Timothy to handle this kind of thing, doesn't it? He says, rebuke them where? In public. Not behind closed doors. Not in a secret meeting that then you go before the church and say, hey, it's been dealt with, don't worry about it. No, it says when pastors sin, it needs to be dealt with publicly. Now, I think there's two benefits to this public rebuking for pastors. First of all, notice what it says, I kind of like this, it is designed to put fear in the others. I mean, it just straight up says it. It's kind of like spanking your kid in front of your other kids, looking eye to eye in each of them. Yeah, yeah, this is coming for you too. If you do what he did, you're next, right? It kind of freaks them out. Well, that's what's happening here. Rebuke them in the presence of all. Why? So that the rest may stand in fear, he says. And so that needs to be seen and needs to be known. One of the things I think about when you, know, when you get on any Christian website that talks about churches and different things, sadly, it seems like every month or even weekly, you read of another pastor who's fallen for whatever reason. And then that public way, it's a good reminder, I think, for us as pastors, those who are in here, to say, that could be me next. 
I shouldn't get too high and mighty to think that I will never slip, that I will never fall, that I will never fail. Because I know I can fail. I know that I can fall. And so that needs to be time of prayer and reflection and asking God to give strength through all these things. But that, that public knowledge of, man, this is what's happened, puts fear in you. But then secondly, when a pastor sins, it's not just a personal sin. The pastor's been called to lead the church, and so every sin that the pastors make is a public matter. It is a public sin because they're the ones leading the church. Becoming a pastor, I've had to push aside the idea that, hey, this is my sin. You can't tell me anything about it. No, that's not true. My sin directly impacts you. It directly influences you. If my sin is sought out, guess what? The name of an Missionary Baptist Church goes down the tube real quick doesn't it? And so it's a public matter in how I live my life. And that's okay because that, again, is according to the word of God. And so Paul commands this form of discipline because it has to be done this way. Now, as I said earlier, I think being a pastor is the most important job there is. And so because of this, I think it needs to be handled well. It needs to be handled well from the pastor's side, but also from the congregation's side. It's a horribly sad thing to see a pastor fail morally. And it's always sad to see the impact that it has on the church. <clears throat> We've seen a lot of churches rise up and a lot of pastors rise up. And we've seen a lot of them get fame pretty quickly. Their name becomes known, they write a book or whatever, and a lot of church people know about them. But we've seen a lot of those guys fail. And the impact that it's had on a lot of their churches, you know what it is? The door's shut. I mean, these are churches with thousands upon thousands of members. <clears throat> and then the door's shut because the pastor sinned. And it's a sad and it's a horrible thing. But this is where Satan likes to attack. It's also sad to see a pastor have to leave a church because of financial struggle. He loves the church, he cares for the church, but the church just isn't willing or sometimes can't, whatever it might be, financially help them. And so the family has to leave, the pastor has to leave. It's also a sad thing to see gossip being the leading cause of pastoral stress and pastoral heartache. Yet again, as I talk with pastors, as I, as I have the opportunity to listen to pastors, I, I want you to know this, and I'm not doing this for my sake. I guess I'm doing it more for their sake. When you talk to pastors, this is always the leading cause. Gossip in the church. Misunderstandings. That leads to stress on them and their marriage and their family. And is really breaking them apart. Now with all this being said, I know it can seem like a downer. But I want to remind us this morning, closing out the sermon is that in how bad you guys are as members and how bad I am as a pastor. All right, catch this. It was God's design for us to be a church together. That's a crazy thing, isn't it? You think, well, there's got to be a better way. <laughs> there's got to be a better strategy. There's got to be better leaders. There's got to be better members. There's got to be better people out there. God, isn't there some other way for this to happen and take place? So I'd warn you to not think that way because... This is the way that God has planned it. 
God is not shocked for a second at my imperfections. He's not. He's not shocked at my personality. He's not shocked in who I am. You want to know why? The Bible tells me in Psalm 139 that God knit me together in my mother's womb. He knows me perfectly well. And the same can be said for you. He knows you perfectly well. If you've ever knit anything before, which I haven't, but I'm told, it takes great detail and care. You know where every little piece of thread has gone because you knit it together perfectly. That's the story of Monroe Missionary Baptist Church right now. God has knit all of us together. And in God's great plan, we have been brought together here as a family to love each other, warts, talents, abilities, and all. To come together to be a light in Monroe County. And I would say this too, and I don't mean this, I guess, too harshly. But I've had people ask me before, Pastor Tim, if I don't go to your church, what church should I go to? I'm going to be honest with you. Out of a good conscience in my heart, there are not many that I can name in our county. It scares me. I listen to a lot of sermons throughout the week. I watch a lot of services. And there personally isn't a lot of congregations that I would suggest people go to. You say, well, you're just bragging about yourself. No, I'm not. I know my faults. I know my failures. But I do know that I try my absolute best to care for your soul every week by feeding you the word of God of which you need. I try to not pull any punches. I try to not skip passages like this one that I would love to not be preaching this morning. But I do it because I believe that God's word tells us that his word is the only thing that can sustain you and that can point you to Christ. That is it. And what I see in a lot of other places is people using a lot of other strategies to get people in. And it scares me. And so while I have my faults and while I have my failures, I will hang my hat to say I at least try to do this for you. And I will continue to do that the best that I possibly can so that we as a family can grow in his word each week. That's what I want for us. I believe that's what God has planned for us as a church family. To come together and to be in his word. You know, one of the things that COVID did, I, I think I've mentioned this before. COVID did a lot of bad things. Uh, when we look back on 2020 and 2021 and I guess continuing in 2023 all the way through somewhat, I would say there's not many good things that COVID did. I think you would probably agree with me. But one of the good things that it did for me in my life is it made me think, what is a church? What is a church congregation? What is it actually that the Bible calls us to do in order to be a church? And what I found is it's not much. Did you know that? God says you should gather together. You should read the word of God. You should pray together. You should preach and exhort the word of God. And you should sing and you should give. Beyond that, there's not many mandates. 
And now I've often wondered this, and I want you to think about this with me this week. When you think about all the nitpicking and all the fighting that happens within church, a lot of times those arguments and those stresses come from not the things I just mentioned, but all the other stuff that happens in a church. And again, the beauty that COVID gave us was you realize all that other stuff, while good, is just stuff. And we shouldn't be fighting over it. Are we a church family who's coming together, singing together, praying together, worshiping together, hearing the word of God preached and read together? If we're doing that, we're being faithful to what God has called us to do. And the Bible tells us that God will use that in our lives to help us grow. And so is God shocked by how messed up we are? No. It took the death of his son to save us, didn't it? It takes the power of the Holy Spirit every second of every day to sustain us in that. And it takes the work of the Father to make this church work together and to make this church grow and being a part of his kingdom. And we do that together in Christ every day, I hope. You say, Pastor Tim, I'm not sure what you want from me from this message. I don't know either. I'm preaching it because it was next. I'll say that again. That's why I'm preaching it. It was next on the list. I hope that some of it is eye-opening in some way. I hope that you see my heart in some way. I'll say this again. I think I said it a couple weeks ago. The pastors that we have here, I really do think they love you. We're not perfect. Uh, We don't claim to be. We really do want to love you well. We want to see good for this congregation. The decisions I think that we make as pastors are always geared towards what will help our congregation be more word-centered, be more Christ-centered, to love him more. That's, that's what's on our minds often because we believe that's what's most important and that's what's central. And I hope that in me saying that, what that does for you is bring some peace to you. I hope that brings some, under, some understanding, maybe, of our heart's a little bit. We have our little awkward things. Yes, we all do. But you do too. And despite that, we want to be a family together to the glory of God and trust that God will use us in this congregation to see some of your family members come to know the Lord or to see some of your neighbors come to know the Lord and to do all this work to his honor, to his glory, and to his praise. Well, next week we'll finish this little section, verses 21 through 25, looking at inclusion in the pastors, the temperance of a pastor, but also the perception there of a pastor. Let's bow together, let's pray. We'll sing one more song, and then we will be dismissed, and hopefully you'll go to the back for the missions fair. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for today. God, even though I've said it many times this morning, I am thankful for this passage. God, I pray that we would take it and honor it. God, I thank you for being a part of a church who I know has loved my family very well for a long time. 
compensation, and that has never been an issue. So I thank you for how that leadership has handled that throughout the years. But God, I, I do pray that you would help us to grow together more as a church family and to understand what that means and to feel that family to un, and, and to see it in your word and to, to love each other and to, to care for each other. Because God, you tell us this is how they will know of how they love each other. And so, God, our love should be different than how the world loves. It should be full of grace. It should be patient and long-suffering and kind to each other. And, God, I'm thankful for the many people in this room who have, been, who have shown me that kind of love. In my faults and in my failures, yet they've continued to love me and they've poured out their grace to me again and again and again. And, God, I just, I just thank you for that. God, I pray that we would do that continually as a congregation. Care for one another. Help us as pastors to lead well. Help us to love this church family the best that we possibly can. To always to keep your word central in every aspect of every decision, of every sermon, of every lesson, whatever it might be, that your word would be central in all of it, that we would constantly be pointing people to Jesus, not to ourselves, not to even our church, but to, to Jesus and who he is and what he has done. God, help us to be faithful to you in that. God, we really do want, as a church family, I believe this is the cry of our heart, is we want to be faithful to you. And God, we want to see our loved ones, we want to see our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, the people who we go to school with. God, we have a desire in our heart for them to know you also. And so God, help us to be faithful, to share the gospel with them, to share with them that Jesus died for their sins, to offer them that salvation that can only be offered through Christ. And God, I pray that you would use those opportunities that we have to open their eyes to your truth. God, I do pray that they our family members and our friends, as we would invite them to church, I pray that they would come and that they would be able to hear a message each week or be a part of a Bible study as well each week and that you would use that in their heart, that you would eventually pour out your grace in their life and save them. God, we know that you continue to do that work. We thank you that we're allowed to be a part of that work. So God, give us boldness to continue it in it each and every day. God, as we get ready to sing this last song, Help us to worship you in it. Help us to honor you in the words that we sing. And help us to respond to your word during this time, we ask in Jesus' name.